0: Well, if you've been here recently, you know we're walking through the book of Exodus together on Sunday mornings as a church family. This is the story of the people of Israel and their miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So we're in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. So up to this point, the Lord has rescued his people. He's brought them out of slavery. They are on their way to the land that he is going to give to them. And so here in Exodus 20, he's meeting with uh, the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and he's giving them instructions on how they are to live uh, in light of their redemption. He's giving them law uh, that's meant to give shape to their their life as his people. And so today we come uh, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Uh, This is the eighth commandment in uh, what's commonly known as the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter twenty, verse fifteen, we read this: "You shall not steal." Uh, just like the previous couple of weeks, we have uh, only two words in the original Hebrew. There's the word for "don't," and then the verb "ganaf," which means uh, literally "to carry away." So, so the sense is, "Don't carry away what doesn't belong to you." Uh, we see this, this word used in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it, it indicates or denotes what we might think of as sort of run-of-the-mill theft, right? In our, our day and age, it would be things like robbery, burglary, uh, pickpocketing, larceny, even carjacking, uh, that kind of thing, purse snatching, right? Taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, it's also used in the Hebrew Bible to to describe sort of more subtle or exotic ways of taking what doesn't belong to you. So... We might think of it in terms of things like fraud or extortion, uh, kidnapping, blackmailing, embezzlement, racketeering, those kinds of things. Whatever the sort of semantic range of this word, the intent is clear. God does not want his people uh, to do these things. And I think this is probably a fairly uncontroversial command. So last week we saw the seventh commandment that touched on uh, the Lord's sort of a prescription for his people when it comes to, to sex and marriage. And, and we thought about the fact that, that what the Lord says doesn't really sync up very well with the wider culture around us. But, but my guess is that if we all went together this afternoon for lunch, it would be hard to get one table that would seat us all. But if we went to one Loudoun and, and while we're waiting for a table, we asked people on the street what they thought of, of stealing, uh, my guess is that, that everyone would agree that taking what doesn't belong to you is wrong. So this is a commandment, I think, that, that most people would agree with. They see the point for. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot for us to consider this morning. And so as we, as we come to God's word in Exodus 20, verse 15, uh, I want to think together about three things. So this will be our outline. Uh, first, the why of the commandment. Uh, second, let's think about the what of the commandment. And then finally, the how of the commandment. So why, what, and how. So beginning with the why, perhaps you've never really thought too deeply about why stealing is wrong, right? It's just not the kind of thing people ought to do. I think it is worth looking, though, at what the Bible teaches us about possessions and about money. And then I think when we, when we see that, we'll have some sense of why God is telling his people that it's wrong to steal from others. And so let me just start out by giving you kind of three data points, uh, three things that the Bible teaches us about money and possessions that I think needs to inform and sort of serve as a foundation for our understanding of the Eighth Commandment. So three things. Uh, first, uh, we see in the Bible that everything belongs to the Lord. So the Lord is the creator of all things, and as such, everything that exists belongs to him. Right? I think we understand the relationship between creation and ownership intuitively. Right? If you if you cut down a tree and you make a table, we understand that that's your table, right? If you, if you write a song, we all understand that that song belongs to you. It's not mine, it's yours. You made it, right? If you build a house, that house is yours to do with as you wish. You can leave it unoccupied, you can sell it, you can live in it, but it's yours. Uh, the Bible tells us that God spoke everything into existence. Uh, Everything that is, is only because he made it. And so the Bible tells us that all things belong to him. Uh, This is something we see all over the pages of scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. In in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. In, In Psalm 89 Ethan the Ezraite says this to the Lord. He says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So in Psalm 50, the Lord tells the people of Israel, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. In the book of Job, the Lord asks, uh, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And, and finally, in his letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 24 when he, he tells those Christians, he says, for the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So I think the, the eighth commandment invites us to, to begin with a very big view of God. Right, as we think about what it means to steal, to take what doesn't belong to you, it's important that we remember that at the sort of deepest level of reality, everything belongs to God. He made it. It is his. The, the second data point that we need to keep in place as we think about the sort of why of the Eighth Commandment is that the Lord takes what belongs to him and he distributes it to, to meet the needs of people. You see that, I think, at creation, that God takes what he's made, takes what belongs to him, and he distributes it in order to meet our needs. At creation, God makes this beautiful world. It's a world full of, of wonder. And he doesn't just sort of make it all and, and then hold on to it and hoard it. But what we see it at creation is that it actually pleases God to create and then give away what he's made. So he puts Adam and Eve in the garden And he says to them, essentially, this is all for you. Eat whatever you'd like, with one important exception. Delight yourself in all that I've made. Even, we see, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God still provides for them by giving them uh, clothing that he's made from animal skins. Right, God makes this world as an overflow of his creativity and beauty and generosity, and he shares it with us. He shares it with human beings as the sort of pinnacle of his creation. And so we see in Scripture that everything we have comes from God. Right? God owns everything, and everything we have comes from him. So this is clear in the way the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples about their anxiety. right In Matthew chapter 6, Verses 25 to 32, the Lord Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. There's a lot we could say about that passage, but for our purposes this morning, just notice that Jesus affirms that every creature receives the physical provision that it needs from God. Jesus asks, How do the birds get food? Your heavenly Father feeds them. How, how do the lilies in the field grow to be so lovely? Well, Jesus says God adorns them with beauty. And then he sort of draws the point. He's not actually talking about birds and flowers. He wants to talk to his disciples about their lives. And so he says, how do, how do you get food and drink and clothing? How do you get the, the roof over, over your head that you need? Well, the answer is clear. God has provided and will provide for you. Everything that we have comes from the God who has everything. Now, a couple of things to note about that. And here I realize that I'm about to give you subpoints to my second sub point on my first point. And I would clearly mark down my seminary students if they did this, but I figured it's Labor Day weekend. There's no one here. We can get away with this. Okay. So these are subpoints to my sub point off my first point. Just a couple of things to notice. First, in God's providence, not everyone gets the same kind and amount of provision. So God owns everything, and he gives freely uh, all that we need. But he doesn't give the same amount to every other person. So there are some people who are very rich, and there are some people who are very poor. and, And most of us are somewhere in between. The Bible seems to take that as the way it's going to be in this world. And so it calls on the rich not to stop being rich, but to use their blessings that God has given to them to to serve and bless others. It calls on the poor not to be jealous or angry, but to trust in the Lord. It calls on all of us to be grateful, to acknowledge that everything we have comes from God, is, is a gift from him, to continue to look daily to the Lord for our bread that we need as we prayed earlier. The second thing to notice, it's it's worth noticing, the Bible does not consider money or possessions to be an inherently bad thing. Right? I think we all understand that money is a blessing. Right? If you if you opened the Pew Bible in front of or the, the Bible under the chair in front of you, right, and you found a hundred dollar bill tucked into that Bible, you would not think you'd been cursed. Right? You'd be like, This is the best church I've ever been to. Right? We know money is good, but we sometimes feel guilty about it as if it would be more spiritual if we could get by without it. Uh, but God made this world, and he knew that we would have needs. And in his love, he provides for those needs. And so certainly money can be problematic. It can be dangerous. Right? It does a lot for us, and so it's tempting to look to money and possessions as a substitute for God himself. But in and of itself, the Bible portrays money as a good thing. It's a blessing from the Lord. It's part of his kindness, a way of meeting our needs. The third thing to to notice is that it's worth noting here that the Eighth Commandment, and really the rest of the Bible as well, it it does seem to clearly support the idea of personal property. There's a way of thinking, I think, that might be be attractive that says that it's sort of selfish and even sub-Christian for you to own things. That in a perfect world, in a better world, everything would just be held in common all the time. Uh, but the Bible seems to understand that even though God owns everything, uh, when they are distributed to individuals, you can, you can understand them to be yours or, or, or mine. Right? That's really kind of foundational to the commandment not to steal. Right? It assumes that you have personal property that does not belong to me, something that I don't have a right to, something I can't take without your permission OK, so now, out of that subpoint, back to the third, or back to our, to our sort of main show here, the third data point. We, we've seen God owns everything, and he distributes it according to his will. Uh, the third thing for us to see in terms of the why of this commandment uh, is, is that the normal means that God has appointed, by which he distributes his things, his possessions, to people to meet their needs, the normal way God does that is through work. So God owns everything. He distributes what we need to us, and the, the normal way that he does that is through work. So there are exceptions to that, things like the, the charity that we saw Boaz extend to Ruth in Ruth chapter 2 earlier in our service. Uh, the Bible speaks uh, positively about the idea of inheritance, uh, a parent passing on possessions to a child. But, but normally, uh, the way that you would expect to get wealth or to acquire the things that you need in life is through work so in Genesis 2 again God creates a beautiful world and he puts man and woman in his garden and it's abundant and lush it has everything they need right but notice he doesn't tell Adam and Eve to to simply sit there like baby birds with their mouths open sort of waiting for the things they need to be dropped into their mouths no God tells them there to work to cultivate the land to make it fruitful I won't belabor this point, I don't think it's very controversial, but it is really the clear teaching of the Bible. You see this particularly in the book of Proverbs, where where having the things you need, having provision and, and work are connected for us so clearly. So Proverbs 10, verse 4, says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, verse 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 13, verse 4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 14, verse 23, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Right, we could keep going, but you get the point. Uh, The normal way that we acquire the things we need is is by working for them. And so as we think through the command not to steal, we want to realize that that as we obey the negative of that command, as we sort of heed its prohibition not to steal, right, the opposite virtue that we need to cultivate is the habit of hard work. We'll come back to this verse a bit later. We read it earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. But this is why the Apostle Paul, writing to, to new Christians, more than a 1,000 years after Moses gives the Ten Commandments at Sinai, he tell, the Apostle Paul tells these Christians, let the thief no longer steal. This is Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So, so we can say that the opposite of stealing, in a sense, is working hard, doing honest work with your own hands to get what you need. Okay, so that's our first point, the, the why of the command, it's sort of the, some of the foundational principles that, that undergird what the Lord is saying here in verse 15. Now for our second point, let's think about the what. That is to say, what exactly is this command forbidding? There, Again, it's two words. In, in the Hebrew, it's four words in our English, "You shall not steal." What, what does that mean exactly? Well, here it might be helpful to mine some of the wisdom of our forefathers. So the Heidelberg Catechism was written in the mid-16th century in Germany, and it reflects this way on the Eighth Commandment. So in question 110, it says, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And then the answer is, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury, we must not defraud our neighbors in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, written about a century after that, so uh, mid-17th century in England, puts it, puts it this way, and this, those folks were wordy, so I'm just going to give you a little piece of, uh, of the overall picture. But question 142 says this, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment are, uh, beside the neglect of, I'm sorry, beside the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing. So this would become significant a bit later in the abolitionist movement, where people pointed out the the clear sort of contradiction between the idea of stealing someone and enslaving them, and the Eighth Commandment. So, so man-stealing. Uh, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, uh, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, so essentially erasing the property line indicators so that you could use your neighbor's property, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depredation, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, that is sort of buying up an entire market and then reselling it at extreme uh, markup, unlawful callings to doing things that are illegal for money, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. I think those catechisms give us a pretty good sense of what it is that we ought to be on guard against. Not just outright theft, right, where I take something from a store without paying for it or I help myself to $20, you know, from a wallet that's sitting on a table, but but also deceiving people in order to take advantage of them. So false advertising that that makes someone buy something that they they wouldn't buy if they knew the truth about it. Or a, a false scale that convinces people to pay more than they should have to. Things like that, the the catechisms point out, fall under this prohibition as well. Again, I think most of us would acknowledge that stealing is wrong, but but the statistics about what exactly life in America looks like with regard to theft are really quite staggering. So according to the FBI's website, there's over five million instances of larceny in America last year. About $5 billion worth of uh, goods were stolen. So 50% of all sort of larcenies were stealing things from people's cars or shoplifting from stores. I mean, even just a few months ago, uh, someone drove away in the church van to find out that someone had, had helped themselves to the catalytic converter one night, right? The, these things just happen. People steal. They take things that don't belong to them. As crazy as that is, it, it only represents uh, possessions that were actually physically stolen. They don't include things like embezzlement, confidence games, forgery, check fraud, right? So you have literally billions of dollars worth of materials being stolen. And those are things that we just think of immediately kind of as as stealing, right? But how about taking things from a hotel? So one hotel reported that uh, in just last year's business, they had to replace 38,000 spoons, 355 coffee pots, and over 100 Bibles. The IRS, yeah, that's kind of funny. The IRS, in terms of cheating on taxes, right, the head of the IRS estimated in last October that tax fraud would cost the U.S. government over $1 trillion just in one year. Uh, Corporate security experts estimate that 25 to 40% of all employees engage in significant theft from their employers. Uh, Employee theft, according to one uh, uh, think tank, plays a significant role in 30% of the businesses that fail. So 30% of businesses that fail, fail in in significant part due to the fact that their employees are stealing from them. One survey indicates that 58% of office workers admit to stealing office supplies. 77% stole pens and pencils. 44% stole sticky notes. 40% stole paper clips. 2% took plants or paintings. (laughs) And 2% took office furniture. So, right? But beyond even just taking things from the office, the American Payroll Association reports that time theft, right, either adding hours to your time card that you didn't actually work or or just simply not doing any work when you're on the clock, cost American companies 7% of their gross annual payroll. Right, so think about all the the ways that we might sort of accept soft theft in our society. Right, think about salespeople who, just intuitively and naturally, and, and are trained to overcharge. So, a few years back, we, we needed a roof uh, on our house. The one we had was leaking, it had been repaired multiple times. It was clearly time for a new roof. I called a few companies that had good reviews on the internet, had them come in. Uh, and I remember, after talking to a few different salesmen, one salesman came in. This is one of those guys who's like determined to give you the three hour presentation, no matter how many times you ask him to leave your house. And so, at the end of this proposal, he, he slides across an estimate, and it was over $60,000 for a roof made of asphalt shingles on a sort of normal-sized house, right? Our house isn't that big. The project wound up costing $14,000, but he was clearly trained to see, maybe this guy has no idea how much a roof should cost. And so, if I stay here long enough and I slide across, maybe he'll give me $65,000 for this roof, right? And I assume it must work, uh, otherwise he wouldn't try it. Right? Th- th- that guy's a thief. You know, I, just, I looked at him and I was like, you're, you're insane. And he, he tried to lower the offer and I was like, no. Like, at this point, you're obviously, you know, not someone that can be trusted. Right? But that's, that's just kind of normal. It's not just salespeople. Right? Medical practitioners who order unnecessary tests in order to jack up billing. People who lie to insurance companies in order to get their claim covered. People who take unemployment payments rather than looking for work. People who take disability payments when they are physically able to work. People who take welfare checks when they could support themselves. Right? We could go on and on and on, listing all the ways that, that we, we might be breaking the Eighth Commandment sort of knowingly or unknowingly. But I think it's important, again, to understand why this is important to God, to see that these are not victimless crimes, that they, that they do real, if not immediately visible, damage to people. That trillion dollars that the government doesn't get from taxpayers, well, that, that gets passed on to everyone else in forms of higher debt or higher taxes or reduced government services. Right? According to some estimates, up to a third of a, a product's cost, so what you're paying at a store, uh, goes to cover all the different forms of theft that have taken place on this product's way to market. Right, 25% of your insurance bill goes to cover the losses that the insurance company experiences due to fraud. Right, and so I say all of that, not to just sort of let you know I know how to use the internet, but but to show you that when we're told to abstain from theft, we're really being called to, to love God by trusting his provision and, and to love our neighbor by, by caring for them as much as we care about ourselves. Right, To treat others, to treat others' possessions the way you would want them to treat you. And so I think as God's people, we need to be careful. Right? Part of our discipleship is, is being careful to be honest and upright in all of our dealings, right? to treat other people's possessions, right, uh, whether that's a, a hotel we're staying at, our neighbor, our employer, to treat other people's possessions with the same care uh, with which we would treat our own. That is the, the what of the commandment. That's what, we're, that's what we're looking for. And that brings us then to our, our final point. That is the how of the commandment. I think what we don't want when we come to any of these Ten Commandments, but, but specifically the Eighth Commandment this morning, is to think, okay, don't steal. Got it. Uh, and then we sort of move on with our lives. Thinking that as long as we don't cheat on our taxes, we've sort of exhausted everything that this commandment means to us. But I think what we've been seeing all along in our exploration of, of God's law uh, here in the book of Exodus is that as Christians, our, our relationship to the law of God uh, is meant to look a bit different uh, than the relationship that the people of Israel had to God's law. See, as the Old Testament continues on, what, what, what you see is that the people of Israel kept running into a problem with God's law. It, it wasn't that God's law wasn't good. It clearly is. Don't steal. That's right. But the problem is they weren't very good at keeping it. Most of them lacked both the desire and the ability to do what God really commanded. So every once in a while, you have an Israelite like the author of Psalm 119, who could declare how much he delighted in the law of God. But most Israelites, as time went by, began to treat God's law as a burden, as if it's a kind of barrier between them and the life they really want to live. Uh, they began to see God's law as a sort of payment that you need to make to God in order to uh, get the things you want from him. And so it's not a shock that as time went by, Israelite society was marked more and more by by rampant theft and and financial exploitation. Because the law, as we read it here in Exodus 20, verse 15, do not steal, that law doesn't come sort of preloaded with the power to obey it. And so sin was simply never far from the hearts of the people of Israel. And so over the centuries, the Lord would send prophets to them, functioning almost like prosecuting attorneys, calling the people of Israel to acknowledge their guilt, their their failure to keep God's law. And so let me just read a couple of examples of what the prophets said, what the Lord said to his people through the prophets. So we see in Ezekiel chapter 22, the Lord says, the people of the land have practiced extortion, extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. In Hosea chapter 4, we read, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. In Isaiah, the Lord condemns the people. He says, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. God even condemns them for their failure to give their tithes, right? The people of Israel were meant to give or 10% of their income to support particularly the temple and its staff. And so in Malachi 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, the Lord asks, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. It's it's so bad that by the end of the Old Testament, God's saying you're you're stealing from me. You're you're not just stealing from other people. Uh, Israelite society was marked by corruption, by a love for bribery, but no love for God. The Lord condemns them for practicing extortionary extortion and robbery. Right? They've put. They put the money that God has given them into their own pockets uh, rather than tithing as he had commanded. But what we see also as the, New Te- or as the Old Testament goes on is that God's not content to leave his people in that state, that, that his goal in giving the law was to do more than merely show them how far they were from his standard. And so God makes a promise to his people, uh, one that we read particularly in two places in the Prophets. So centuries after God gives this law, after centuries of of really, honestly, disobedience to God's law, theft, adultery, murder, all the things we read about in in the Ten Commandments, this is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So God promises his people a new covenant. He says, it's not going to be like the covenant I made at Sinai, the one that you broke, the covenant that that came after we got out of Egypt. The Lord says there's going to be a new covenant. And that promise of a new covenant was fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, the new relationship that God would have with his people. Jesus, in a sense, is God's answer to the problem of the law, to the problem of the fact that the the human heart doesn't have the ability to please God, right? How can sinful people like Israel, how can sinful people like us, how can we have a relationship with a holy God? That's the problem of the old covenant. Well, in his love, God did everything that was required he made a new covenant, a new arrangement with us uh, through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, uh, the son of God uh, in human flesh. He lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father and he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. As Jesus was crucified, he took on himself all of the guilt and all of the punishment, all of the, the shame that we deserve for all of our sins. Jesus paid the price for all the ways that you and I have stolen from others. The ways we've cheated others and mistreated them. On the cross, Jesus took what we deserve. And he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And now he offers new life to anyone who will come to him. To anyone who will turn from their way of life and put their trust in him. But Jesus didn't just die to take away the guilt of our sin. Though if that's all that he had done, we would have more than enough to be, to be grateful for eternity. But, but Jesus died to bring about the reality of the promises of the new covenant. He came so that you and I could have new life. So that we could be transformed more and more into the image of our God. So when you come to Christ in faith... He gives you his spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as was promised through the prophets. God's spirit now lives in his people in a way that it that it didn't in the old covenant. In the old covenant, they didn't have the power to obey, but but now the spirit of God is in us. And and Jeremiah says that he he writes the law of God on our hearts. He makes it so the law is not a burden to us. I wish I could commit adultery. I wish I could steal. I wish I could murder. But but no, the the law now fits in with exactly who we delight to be, right? Even if sometimes I'm not all that good at it, even if I'm sometimes tempted or I I struggle, that struggle is not who I am. It doesn't bring me joy or happiness. Uh, My heart's desire as a Christian, as someone who has God's spirit in him, whose law is written on my heart, my, my desire is to do the will of God. So here's what that means for us. As we come to the Eighth Commandment, there, there's a way of reading it that would just just sort of have you walk away saying, okay, self, no stealing for you, right? Maybe there's some ways you've been stealing, cheating, defrauding that you need to be aware of. You need to repent because, because God is no joke and you don't want to be the kind of person who does wrong things. So now's the time decide you're going to do better. My guess is that if you're disciplined, if you have a sensitive conscience, you might succeed someone at that. But but I think actually that God's law is not going to be a source of joy to you in that circumstance. And my guess is that you'll walk away from this sermon and this Sunday morning gathering not not really feeling much like you've heard good news. But I think there is good news in the Eighth Commandment. And that, that good news is that God actually wants far more from you and far more for you. He actually wants to change you. He wants to transform you into the perfect image of his son. He wants to make you more like Jesus so that you love what he loves and you do what he does. And so what is Jesus like? Well, he's not a thief. That's true. But even more than that, he is incredibly generous. Jesus comes and he, he provides for people. Even in, even in sort of physical ways, we see, right? Did you catch in Ruth chapter 2 how when she gleans in Boaz's field, she has enough and some left over? Right? Maybe if you if you're familiar with the Bible, that, that triggered a kind of uh, a thought in you because we, you see that phrase somewhere else. Right? When the Lord Jesus provides bread, uh, he, he miraculously provides fish and bread for hungry people, right? They collect, everyone eats as much as they want and they collect extra. Right? That's what, that's what Jesus' provision looks like. That's what it looks like when God takes care of his people. It's not just barely enough, right? but it's, it's, it's all that you need and even some left over. Right? If, if the opposite of theft uh, isn't ultimately non-theft, right? it, it looks like for us more, to keep the Eighth Commandment, it's more than simply not stealing. Right? It's, it's beginning to look like Jesus to look like someone who delights in meeting the needs of others. Right? So, so keeping the Eighth Commandment, it does mean not stealing, but, but even more than that, it means being transformed by God's Spirit into someone who looks like Jesus. So the opposite of theft, as I said, it's not don't steal. The opposite of theft is loving generosity. right? If, if theft is preying on someone for your benefit, then the opposite of that is actually providing for someone else, even at your own expense. So the Heidelberg Catechism rightly reminds us that the Eighth Commandment positively commands me that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. And so here's the thing, when you look at the Bible, you see that that's exactly what happens to the new covenant people of God. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the 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 promise of Jeremiah 31 being fulfilled as God's spirit descends on his people. So now God's people have his spirit in them and his law is written on their hearts. And you know what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2? We read there in verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Brothers and sisters, one of the first acts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church was to make them generous, to give them such love and care for one another that they would not only refrain from stealing, though that's good, that's right, but that they were moved to happily, joyfully take what was theirs, right, their personal private property, and liquidate it to provide for the needs of others. Right, so in that passage from Ephesians 4 that we've read a couple of times in this service already. Listen to how Paul t- uh, instructs the church. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Right? right, we've gotten that far already. But Look at how he concludes. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right, so there, there would be people in this church in Ephesus who had been thieves, right, who who were actually like making their lives by, or their living by, by stealing from other people. And so Paul calls on those people to, to no longer steal. But, but even more than that, he says, begin to do honest work, right? And he, and he says, you know, not just to provide for yourself, right? He's not just saying, hey, don't steal your food anymore, work for it. But he's saying, actually, maybe even work enough that you might have extra, that, that you might be able to share with someone who does have a legitimate need. And so do you see this kind of glorious calling that we have, brothers and sisters? Like can you see how God's law is actually good news to us? That, it, that it's just prying our fingers off of things, earthly treasures, things that will bring you no lasting joy. Right? Things, things that will ultimately rust, things that moths will destroy, things that you will leave behind at the grave Right, God's law in, in his love, with, with, with his spirit implanted in us, with his law written on our hearts, God actually wants to take our hands and pry them off of those physical possessions and then replace those things with what with, with the hymn writer calls solid joy and lasting treasure. Right, he wants to give us instead a great love for him and for our brothers and sisters and for the spread of the gospel. So I think it's appropriate that we conclude by by coming to the Lord's table. Maybe the best application of the Eighth Commandment is to come to the Lord's table. Because it's here, as we come to to celebrate and to remember the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, it's here that I think we see the ultimate perfect picture of generosity, of, of sacrificial love in action. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthians to generosity? In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by his, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus, in a sense, allowed himself to be robbed. He, he allowed himself to be mistreated and abused by sinful men. He willingly gave up all of his riches and glory. And he did that so that our hands could be loaded with every spiritual blessing. So as we think about the Eighth Commandment, as we think about what it means to to not steal, remember the Lord Jesus, who, who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that by his poverty we might be rich. And so let's pray together and then come to the table. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in who you are. We delight in your creation, your creativity, your beauty, your abundance, your provision. We thank you that you provide all that we need and you have given to us so generously. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we we praise you and we love you because you did not cling tightly to what was yours but you became poor so that we might be rich. Holy Spirit, would you continue your good work of writing your law on our hearts, of causing us to delight in your ways, of making us more and more like Jesus, so that these, these commands that we read would not be, be dead and inert and lifeless, a burden on a page, would actually be a great source of joy to us. Would you, would you make us a people who delight in providing for the needs of others?